do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. This is Sean Patrick Terrio, your host of the I Love Data Centers podcast. Today, we have Sam Barhome, CEO and founder of Ready Networks, a new provider of ours in our ecosystem. We dig into a lot of pretty fun topics on the cloud, such as DevOps, uh, Kubernetes, Docker, migrating into the cloud, migrating out of the cloud, security, SDN, and much, much more. So enjoy the show. Sam, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the I Love Data Centers podcast. It's great to hear from you and spend time with you today. We're going to dig into a lot of different topics, but for those who are listening who don't know who you are, real quick, Sam, who who are you and where are you? I appreciate the, uh, the time, Sean. Um, my name is Sam Berhume with Ready Networks, and I am right outside of Chicago, a small suburb called Evanston, Illinois. Right on. It's my hometown, buddy. Yes, sir. So, born and raised in Chicago, or how how'd you land in Evanston? Uh, born in San Francisco, and uh, mom and dad made their way back to the city here uh, when I was about 10 years old. So, I'm, uh, you can call me a Chicago native for sure. So, are you uh, a Cubs fan or a Sox fan? Uh, of course, we're a Cubbies fan all day yeah, long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You watching any of the uh, the preseason preseason games going on? Uh, just something between work, right? I mean, we uh, we're definitely focused on on uh, the IT part of the house, but uh, trying to do what we can. Yeah. All right, my friend. So you're in Evanston, Illinois, but you didn't grow up in Evanston. Where Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the city. Um, went to Gordon Tech High School. For anyone that's listening, that's uh, from Chicago. Yeah. And uh, funny enough, not too far away from uh, Wrigley Field. Yeah. I remember wrestling back in high school against Gordon Tech, and it was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. I was uh, about a hundred and two weight class, and just started to hit puberty, so I was growing. So I was tall and skinny, and I lost to a like ninety-seven pounder who was about a foot shorter than me. He just owned me, and I, I walked away from that experience just feeling very humbled, very humbled. So I have I have a very close special place in my heart for your high school <laughs> that's, uh, that's i think that's a good thing for us right <laughs> well it's a good thing for me how did you get into tech did you have parents that were in the industry or were engineers or what, what got you interested in computers and technology 
No, you know, total opposite. Um, mom and dad were hardworking uh, retail folks. And, uh, you know, one thing that my father taught me was to try not to do what he's doing, which is, you know, work hard and, and not do smart and great things, right? So um, we learned from him. And uh, IT was just a knack for us. Um, at the time, obviously, we're in the cloud business today, but at the time, tech was a way different type of landscape. And so we started like anybody else, just pounding away at a keyboard and having some fun with it. And uh, that started at an early age for me. How early of an age do you remember sitting in front of a, a computer? My first computer was a Packard Bell, which was in 1988, just to kind of put my age out there a bit. Um, so that was would have been uh, around seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. Nice. Were you using it for basic word processing for school and whatnot? Oh, of course not. We just bought it for games at the time. Yeah. What, what games were you playing? Do you remember Prince of Persia? That was probably one of my uh, best games. And I'll tell you why. It was only because at the time they actually figured out how to animate a character moving across the screen. Uh, but there were a ton of games at that time. So, you know, it was really just getting close to a computer and, and better understanding uh, the functionality of it. And at the time, uh, it was a unique it was a unique era. You know, the, the industry was just growing and computers were just evolving. And so a lot of software was uh, coming to, to market and, and all that caught my interest. Did you have a gaming system too, like an Atari or, or something of the sort? I did. <clears throat> I did have an Atari. Uh, and uh, between the Atari and the computer, the computer took uh, took priority. It, uh, it, it consumed me. And so basically, uh, continued to you know, work on this computer and, and tried like any, any other child or person intrigued with something, always trying to make it better and uh, faster and more effective. And I think that was the beginning of, you know, my, I don't want to call it my, my focus of my career, but definitely my passion to be in technology today. And when you, you went off to college, I take it somewhere, where'd you go off to college? I went to DePaul. Oh, downtown. At DePaul, were you an engineering major? I was a CIS major. Yep. You were. So you did follow that path. What's interesting, and I think this is part of what really appreciate about the time that we spent together and, and as I've been getting to know you is very, very few owners of businesses in, in our space have an engineering background and engineering degrees, especially computer engineering degrees. There may be electrical engineers on the data center space and, and whatnot, but um, most are finance, finance or real estate uh, background and, and core competency who you know, get into our space primarily because they see opportunity from a financial perspective. But Part of the reason why I'm diving you down these 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 questions, Sam, is that I want to get into your engineering background because I think it plays to the nature of what it is that you're doing today. Did the first quip of you becoming an entrepreneur occur when you were at DePaul, or did that happen after you graduated? It actually, you know, it's funny you asked that. It actually happened before school in terms of um, high school and college. It, it happened seeing, as I mentioned earlier, uh, parents being um, entrepreneurs themselves and owning their own, uh, uh, we were in the grocery store business. So uh, we had a bunch of grocery stores here in the north side and a few in the south side of Chicago. So you know, watching them um, through through my life and through my lens uh, really showed me the opportunity that if you can figure out something good, um, and what I thought you know is good for me was technology and work hard at it, it uh, put those two together, you can have some good success. Good. So you had background in entrepreneurship and family who 
ran a business. Was your dad and mom supportive of what you were doing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, to, to the point where, you know, mom and dad did not want me part of the business. They wanted me to focus on my dreams and my passion, which is really a nice opportunity for me to, you know, step away from the family business and not get entrenched with it. And so that uh, that was a huge help for me. And then, you know, as I graduated from GT and continued to pursue technology, uh, you know, at that point, it was the tech and the passion that drove the uh, the interest to to stay focused and you know and it's a, the, you know the, the technology center itself and really it wasn't finance or the, the desire to not that no one wants to make a lot of money but the desire to actually make money first um, the focus for me was just to enjoy what I was doing. Going back, I'm curious: was there a moment in your in your life, maybe when you were in high school or before, where things just started to click. And, you know, for me, for example, I can close my eyes and very vividly remember sitting on my bed when I had just started working in the industry and my boss was explaining to me what a trace route was and, you know, walk me through getting into my DOS prompt and then running a trace route and seeing all the hops. And he was explaining like what those hops were and the light bulbs just went off and I just put my computer down and walked away for a little bit and paced around and just my brain was on fire and like all these connections were being made. It all started to make a ton of sense to me. And the, uh, that was like the aha moment where I was like, I am all in. I'm totally in. This is freaking amazing. Yes, I want more. And that was kind of that moment for me. Did you, did you have anything like that in your life? You know, I've had a few good moments where I think I, I really were, were key points for me. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I do remember uh, an instance where, you know, I used to have a couple of good buddies. We were, we'll call it a clique, and uh, we used to just kind of hang out and do our things behind these, these computers. At any rate, um, a good friend of mine at the time, and still is today, 30 plus years later, wrote, if you recall, back at the time, an ANSI bomb. <laughs> and I, and I use that word jokingly, but if you remember the term ANSI, it was basically a display function. And so he was able to code this ANSI function in a, in a Pascal code uh, at the time. And I think it was that moment that I realized where software and hardware can come together and do some pretty cool things. So I would tell you that was pro- that would have been probably one of those moments for me. You know, to be totally honest with you, I've never heard of what an ANSI bomb is. Can you explain what, what that is? It is uh, it's code. At the time, if you recall, um, back in... Um, the late 80s, early 90s, where high-definition screens actually did not exist, right? So it was only 256 colors on a display or on a tube. And ANSI is the, the, the process that's defined to display those colors. And so you would be um, in an application at the time, and you would run a script, or you would inject this ANSI code, and it would hijack your screen, and it would just take over any of the graphics at the time that you were looking at. Well. Wow. And were you able to have it do that to screens outside of just the one in front of you? Like, were, were you hijacking other people's screens? It was certainly not as sophisticated as today, right? So things weren't interconnected. So it was a local instance that could be hijacked or taken over. But, uh, you know, as you can imagine, that concept has definitely um, escalated throughout the years. And, and it's, uh, it's a whole different space today. But it was, it was definitely a local, local instance at the time. Gotcha. All right, so you're at DePaul, you're a CIS major, and you're 
getting getting into the weeds of learning how all these uh, systems and networks you know operate and work and probably took some management classes and whatnot and then you graduate how how did you get from there to ready networks oh boy that's uh that's a long yeah that's a long timeline so um after uh, finishing school <clears throat> you know you know just like any other college student looking for work and super hungry at the time just really really eager just to get into anything tech my first job was for a company out of oak brook here in illinois um, open systems integration, which is no longer in business today, but there were actually a HP, uh, Unix Linux shop at the time. And, uh, really that was my first stint in the workplace, had the opportunity to, to understand business and understand technology as it related to the mainframe space. So as you can imagine, uh, those, those platforms today don't exist anymore, but that was my my first um, stint into into the workplace and learned a lot. Had a great mentor at the time, and I and I think you know I'm an individual that really observes people and really takes the good from you know any human person that I interact with. And uh, there were this team was absolutely stellar. A lot of ex HP guys had come up to start up this entity, and I think what drove me to continue to stay with them um, was their sense of entrepreneurship, which is something that I uh, levitated to and, and really had an appreciation for. So you said, though, I think you made a comment about mainframes and how they, they don't exist anymore. Were you, was that what you were trying to say? You know, I take that back. Not that they don't exist anymore, but they're certainly um, not as uh, um, perhaps relevant today as they were back before the the Y2K boom, right? As you can imagine, the technology platforms are certainly evolving. So I think that's a more appropriate statement. Yeah. And the only reason why I brought that up is um, over the last few years, it's been shocking to me to find out how much money is still being spent on mainframes. And, you know, they're very large, you know, there's still financial industry and insurance industry and a handful of industries that are still heavily reliant on some of these archaic, archaic, very large uh, mainframes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they're definitely still, uh, you know, still in the marketplace today, and they'll continue to be so for quite some time, no doubt. Yeah. So, with the, you told me a fun story about what you were doing right before you got into Ready Networks when I was sitting down in your office, um, and you were playing around with some IoT in the retail space. Um, what What were you doing then, and what you know? Can you tell a little bit about that. That experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so after OSI, I continued my journey and, um, well, you know, wanted to evolve myself as a, as a person as well as professionally. Um, so, uh, kind of flash forward about five to seven years later, um, in around 2002, 2003, I was part of a Chicago startup, um, that raised a pretty significant amount of capital here in Chicago. We'll, we'll leave the name out for today's conversation, but um, at any rate, the, the startup was really based on the initial onset of it was based on SMS text messaging, and so um, this is way before content was extremely relevant, as you can imagine today, and where you know the Spotify's of the world were just starting to kind of get off the ground and, and the Pandoras, etc. And so our play was the following. We basically enabled consumers to walk into a venue and trigger content via SMS requests. So you would send a 
you would type in a code and you'd send it to a location ID off of your phone. And then once you did that, we took that code and processed the content or the video at the time that we were playing for you. And we would display it and play it either in queue or next in line at the TV that you texted it to or from. So that was our play at the time. And, uh, you know, that was a great, probably the the one um, experience and that, you know, the entirety of that experience is really kind of what drove me to start Ready Networks today. What is Ready Networks? Ready Networks today is a uh, cloud managed services uh, platform focused on the three major technology cloud systems, which is Amazon Web Services, Azure, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud. So we are effectively just really focused on workloads and moving people to the cloud from a from a work from a physical or virtual perspective trying to lift and shift those resources over to the cloud platforms themselves. Did you grow into doing that? Were you, were you doing managed services like on-prem outsourced IT type of managed services or did you really literally, you know, grow in the cloud? No, that's a great question. So, you know, being a data center guy, so let's kind of take it back a little bit, right? So as I was part of this Chicago startup, um, I I was head of infrastructure for that that startup. And so my job was to build the backend infrastructure, um, data center um, software requirements to create the enablement of that text and to be able to play that content on screen. And so, you know, being a data center guy, infrastructure route switch, I really had a passion for it. And I also started seeing consolidation in the data center space from my perspective, not to say that um, the data center space is going anywhere because I still believe it'll always stay. But the consolidation forced me to think about alternative service options and solutions that we can bring to the table and kind of peer them up together. So traditionally, we were an MSP and an organization that was that it was focused on, um, you know, that on-premise or, or data center approach. And as we continue to evolve and as the cloud technologies continue to progress, we found that we were, we were just kind of navigating our way more towards cloud. So how, how long ago was that, if you can put a timestamp as to when you started playing with... Uh... Was it AWS? Was that the first local cloud that you, public cloud you were playing with? AWS was the first one. And um, I uh, I left that Chicago startup back in 2012. And uh, fortunately, things did not end up very well for that that company. And so I had two options. It was really um, evolve and continue to grow or go get a job, which is something I had done and, you know, uh, not really interested in doing ever again. And so in 2012 is really when we started up Ready Networks, um, had a series of customers and just, you know, a good following of clientele that had my back in terms of what we were able to do. And when I say we, it was me and um, a couple of other resources that came along with me. And so uh, it was really, the you know, the birth of, of Ready and, and kind of what we were, you know, what we were wanting to do to move forward. So when we started Ready Networks, it was an MSP. And in 2014 or 2015, to answer your question, 
is really when we felt the impact of cloud. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you a, a perfect example is when you're talking to a customer and now they no longer want to talk data center or on-premise and they want to have a conversation around cloud and you're not able to have that conversation. And so for me, that was the turning point to understand that the business is moving and it's shifting and evolving. And so I have to evolve with it or it's just going to pick up and leave me behind. So what what did you do? What steps did you take to become competent in in the cloud space? Because um, there are so many MSPs um, and there are so many consultants in the industry who like don't even know where to start. They don't know if they should go get certifications or take classes or, or what. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. So I started first at the business level, right? So I needed to understand the landscape, understand, you know, the products and technologies that drive and solve problems. And so for me, that was that was the um, the challenge, right? Is because at the time there is no, and there still necessarily isn't a defined financial model or business model per se, because it's sub, it's subject to you know whoever the audience is and which lens they're looking through it. But at any rate, to answer your question, what I did is I focused on on the business component of it, and once I determined what that was, and I you know tried it and shifted back and forth on a few things and finally got to a point that I felt this is it. This is what's going to make sense for me and for my business model and my focus areas moving forward. Um, And I pursued it. And then I reversed back into the technical requirements to ensure that the staff and the, the resources that we had were, you know, competent and professionally trained in the areas that we're going to go after because the market was driving those requirements, not necessarily my my passion for it made me wanting to focus on one area, but focusing on the right area. So, so what, what, going, going back, back just a little bit, when you said you first focused on the business side of it, what, what, what does that mean? Like, what did what that did mean that to you at that time? time? What, what specific, specific business, business side were you focused on? You know, that's a good question. Um, one of the lessons learned from this startup that I walked away from is you can be fantastic at anything that you do in life, but if you don't know how to market yourself and from a business perspective and you don't know how to put yourself out there, um, people will never know how great you are, right? And so in life, that's, that, that holds true both personally and as well as from a business perspective. And so I took that away as one of my lessons from um, from this organization is they did such a great job at marketing and really promoting and I, I saw what that did and so when I when I departed and I left it was really focused on how do I grow a business because this is what I wanted to do these were my personal goals and I wanted to grow this to um, to, to be good at it from a technology perspective but to also make money I mean I'm in the business of making money so um, so how do I drive that experience while still being um, connected to it from a technology perspective, but really solving problems that businesses and organizations need. So again, I, I did my homework and I continue to, to look at problems in this space. And one of the things that we saw were a lot of workloads being migrated over to cloud. And so how do we move over a, a VMware host or a Hyper-V host? And how do we lift it and shift it over to a cloud environment without impacting the, the customer's on-premise experience. 
and you know help them consolidate either billing or compute and consumption, right? So those were some of the challenges that we saw from a technical perspective. And it, it just became a snowball, right? So after after we solved one problem and two problem, it really created a playbook for us that uh, that today's uh, a proven model as we you know approach other customers from a cloud standpoint. Given that you jumped in around 2014, 2015, leveraging the likes of AWS, AWS at that point was relatively mature. What specific things have you seen evolve? that you think are very impactful and powerful for your customers over the last few years alone? Well, that's a loaded question. Good question for sure. So Amazon and the other platforms today are have evolved tremendously. And we're asked, you know, 10 years ago, they were just focused on moving infrastructure to the cloud. Now the evolution has gone past that and more into, you know, data analytics and artificial intelligence, um, machine learning, for example, or um, image recognition, right? So these are all evolutions that these cloud platforms are really focused on because if you think about their maturity and the total number of customers that they've absorbed within the last 10 years, especially at the enterprise level, a lot of those enterprises have their workloads there now, and now they're focused on presentation and data and how do we actually capture and get more nimble with the information that we have. And so as the mid-market to small businesses continue to want to move to cloud, uh, my perspective is that the enterprise is already there, and now they're trying to um, elaborate on what they have and how to make that drive um, at a much faster speed. And then you know, Microsoft Azure, for example, and that evolution, which has been pretty steep over the last few years. I mean, around 20, what, 2015, 2014, when you first started getting into it, Azure was kind of still, you know, I want to say it was in demo mode or beta, but it, it was not as adopted in the marketplace as it is today, um, you know, probably for a variety of reasons. But how have you seen that platform specifically evolve? And that platform, yeah, that's, that's a, another good, really good question. So that platform has evolved tremendously in the last three years. And if you, if you look at Gartner specifically, you'll see that although Amazon is leading um, the marketplace today from a cloud standpoint, from a revenue perspective, if you actually look at the details, you'll find that Azure has had double double growth digits over the last um, three years. And so um, what, what's that mean? That means that, you know, as cloud continues to grow and adopt, the, the people that are more comfortably um, um, driven to pick Microsoft as a solution, they're listening and they're understanding what um, what their needs are through Microsoft's lens. And so that's what Microsoft is seeing right now from an Azure standpoint is people are expecting or accepting the the uh, the platform and moving t- towards it at a much faster rate. And with Google, because we can't leave them out of this situation here, um, they're almost hitting that same point uh, where people are starting to take notice and leverage them for specific reasons uh, in you know for, for cloud adoption. Um, what would you say those reasons are where, where Google shines relative to their competition? Google is doing a great job as well. And again, these are all my perspectives, right? So um, it, it's all relative in life. But um, Google will continue to shine in the hypervised virtualization platform. And the more of a, of a bare metal 
uh, lift and shift migration effort. And one thing that Google does extremely well is data. Um, if you look at their, you know, their natural language processing engines and how now you can actually converse with a computer and have a conversation with them, that's by by far leading the space um, on the AI side. So it's a it's a it's a fight of the titans for sure, right? Every every platform has a great calling. Every platform maybe does one or two things slightly better and different, and and that's what makes us really agnostic is we'll we'll approach a customer and better understand what their business objectives are and really determine if they are focused on infrastructure we'll move them to you know maybe bucket number a they're focused on data maybe bucket number b and or ai and really advanced machine learning uh, technologies we'll put them in the right home is what i'm trying to say and and focus on their challenges and objectives and not the platform of choice to sell gotcha and then I'm curious, I don't know if I've asked you this before, but with IBM, right? Um, you know, back in the day, Software was the company to beat when it came to hosted services, you know, on-demand hosted services, monthly recurring billing. They had so many different uh, sizes and shapes and um, flavors of IaaS. And you know, IBM bought them and subsequently, you know, from my perspective, destroyed the, the channel that uh, software had in the indirect market of consultants that were selling those services. And then they made it almost impossible for someone to actually continue to sell those services by making them jump through a million different hoops. Have you seen IBM make a concerted effort coming back into that space? I know from a you know, from a revenue perspective and stock perspective, if you look at the amount of money that they're making on their quote-unquote cloud side of the house, it's growing exponentially year over year. It's helping them. Actually, I think they had their first profitable quarter the last quarter in plus years, um, primarily because of their shift in focus into the cloud space. But are you also hearing that and seeing that in the market? Uh, we are, you know, and, and as, as my comment earlier about marketing, marketing is a long-term strategy, right? And so if you think about what IBM has done throughout the years, let's just take a look at the last five years is they, they've continued to acquire and to stack their you know, soft layer at the time, now IBM Cloud Platform. And, and I think what it's done to the marketplace, it's kind of confused the direction of where they want to head towards until recent quarters where I think they're they're finally back at the cadence where they need to be. Um, now, with that said, the one thing that I th- I do believe this as a, as a valid statement, IBM will continue to thrive in verticals and areas where there's data governance and bare metal infrastructure that needs to be adhered to. So um, the financial industry, the banking industry, uh, anyone who um, has historically had an IBM touch and wants to continue to pursue that path but focus on you know their cloud platform, I think IBM will shine there. And this is my personal opinion, um, not driven by f- any factual basis whatsoever. But I- I've had you know a lot of experiences where we've seen customers just be more comfortable because of the the legacy hooks that IBM has had with with other technologies. So um, I would put them as the you know definitely the top five cloud platforms out there today. Gotcha. So one of the topics, one of the many topics that I want to cover with you here is. Uh, when a customer is deciding and a, let's say a consultant who's working with a customer is deciding where to put their data, right? And you're walking through them, you know, it's, it's clearly, 
And obviously not always the case that migrating all data to the cloud is the right solution. What what are those use cases when a company uh, should should strongly consider not migrating all of their data into the cloud? Um, so, you know, as we assess and look at a customer's, <laughs> excuse me, as we assess and look at a customer's goals for cloud migration, it's really not just about moving to cloud and just saying, hey, I'm, I'm no longer interested in data center and I want to be on one of the five cloud platforms, right? There has to be drive and purpose. And, and again, I always lead with business. It always has to make sense. If I can't justify or speak to a, a CFO or a, a CIO who does have a finance background, right, then it, it, it's not going to be viable for them and therefore it won't be viable for the business. And so um, we will we'll always look at transactional data and performance to determine if cloud's a great uh, a great component for a customer. And what do I mean? Um, let's just take, for example, you're a manufacturer doing under a billion dollars in revenue, but somewhere living at a $500 million run rate. And you have an advanced ERP system that's performing on-premise. You've got um, infrastructure that's in your manufacturing plant that's always collecting data and presenting analytics so that way your efficiencies around, um, around manufacturing are as peak as possible. And so if you were to move some of those components to cloud, you run the risk of impacting that performance and that those analytics because nothing beats physics and nothing beats you having the ability to reach and transactionally touch equipment that's on-premise or close to premise whatsoever. So um, that takes me into the hybrid approach, which is basically there are and I believe this to be for almost any organization focused on cloud, the hybrid approach sometimes is the best approach for them where we're giving them the ability to, to continue to perform and to excel at that level of data and, um, and providing that metrics while still taking advantage of the cloud platforms that are not so connected or not so connected real time to that business uh, on a day-to-day basis, if that makes sense. It totally does. Um, and I hate to put you on the spot again here, but can you think of another, and that was a great use case, can you think of another use case where having data on-prem would make more sense than pushing that into one of the public cloud IS providers? Absolutely. So as we look at IoT and machine learning, um, the healthcare platform as well is another is another great use case, right? So as you collect information from um, um, equipment that's living in a patient room or as you want to um, take telemedicine, for example. Uh, telemedicine today is driving a, a tremendous amount of revenue for doctors who are, you know, are remote or on-premise, right? So anything, as we approach hybrid, I, I think it holds true for any vertical. If, if it's, That's probably a better way to put it. So if there is a customer that requires high-performance I.O., high-performance data, we always lead with better understanding if cloud was to go down or if the infrastructure isn't able to um, support them from a cloud perspective. How do we put 
how do we solve that problem from a hybrid on-premise standpoint with with hardware? So um, hyper-converged infrastructure, for example, is a great use case where we can continue to build and cluster technology on-premise and then replicate that over to cloud and really bridge that gap for that customer where they've got um, equipment on on-site. And so they've got local survivability. They're not dependent on, you know, the, the remote services while still using the cloud technologies for advanced database um, platforms, et cetera. Gotcha. And the, the rationale behind this question should be obvious, but I think a lot of people struggle to understand why it is that certain, certain data and workloads could, should uh, be localized. And there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of what we call repatriation going on for those companies that may have early on just said, we're all in, we're all cloud, you know, everything's going to be a lot easier and a lot cheaper if we just migrate it to the cloud. And then they're realizing, well, actually, it's, it's not the case all the time for all workloads. Um, and speaking to repatriation, are you, are you coming across that? Are you, is that something that you're um, seeing customers talk to you about? Absolutely. And so, you know, looking back again at that concept and, Continue, continuing to be true to my grassroots, which are data center and infrastructure, I think that that's what makes me unique from a lot of the other um, entrepreneurs out there. I, I lead with what I know that works best, and I lead as a business owner, and I try to put myself in their shoes and look through their lens and say, okay, um, I'm still a little old school. I still like to touch it and feel it and kick it, and yet I have a huge appreciation for data and performance. And so I, I like, and I, and I, you know, one of the things that I always tell our, our team members here is if it's not real for you, it's not going to be real for the customer because people are smart, even if they don't understand technology. They, they have to have a correlation to their infrastructure and to their operations. And so with that said, you know, we reverse back into um, uh, what what works best for a customer, and so so there you have it. That that's our approach from the standpoint of hybrid versus cloud. Gotcha. One of the other topics that I'd love for you to drop some knowledge for those who are listening is the whole concept of containers and you know, Docker and Kubernetes and these different uh, virtualization platforms that have changed the game for migration of workloads and migration of data. Um, how how have you seen that space kind of evolve from the basic VMware environments into where they are today, and how does that affect the the industry that we're in? Very very good question. Um, so you know that that falls into the area of development and operations, or AKA DevOps, right? So as you look at data containerization, Kubernetes, Docker, etc. It's really a focus of information in one particular bucket. And what's great about containerization is it's agnostic as well. So if an organization is containerizing their data and it lives in one platform, that platform can actually be moved from, you know, Amazon over to Azure or GCP for that matter. Or you can even reverse that containerization strategy back to on-premise. And so um, the concept is real simple, right? Um, have your data in a, in a location where we can actually write infrastructure code against it and, and continue to grow your analytics, your BI, um, 
your presentation layer as as you can think about the OSI model. For those who know what that is, it's basically the seven layers of how we compute, right? Everything from um, the network data center layer two and beyond all the way to presentation. And so DevOps and containerization really plays at that at that presentation layer for customers who are more advanced and want to be able to have access to information on the fly. So I've always, you know, when I first started hearing about uh, containers, I kind of you know, imagined this magical bubble that wraps around all of your data and your systems that you could just easily pick up and move um, anywhere you want. Is it is it really that magical and that that simple, or um, you know, are there are there you know, can can any company just create containers around any application and migrate them from point A to point B, or are there limitations around? Uh, what can and cannot be containerized? There's there's limitations, but I'll t- I'll put put it to you this way: it's like building a house from scratch, right? If you architect your house, you think about the size of your kitchen and your living room and your dining room, etc. How big your backyard is. Um, if you get it right the first time, high probability you'll probably never move because it's your dream home and you've you've designed it exactly the way you want. Containerization is almost the same way. If you architect your applications and your data the right way, it becomes easier to move. If you don't have a strategy in place and you don't understand the long-term use of your containerization's you know, infrastructure goals and you're constantly pivoting and moving, then yes, it's going to be a nightmare. So um, I always encourage, you know, uh, CIOs and other people focused in the DevOps um, uh, part of the business is to really have a long-term plan as it relates to their containerization infrastructure and better understand, you know, what those, those KPIs are. And when they do that, it becomes a much easier conversation. So what, let's walk through, again, for our listeners, a tangible use case of when leveraging a containerization strategy would make sense? Um, so let's imagine a, let's talk about new business. So we, we, we made an example for some traditional manufacturers. Let's just say your business is online today, okay? You're a, you're a born-in-the-cloud um, business entrepreneur who is focused on applications and solving, you know, sell, selling a product. And so if you're able to containerize your data, use these um, Kubernetes-style platforms to hold your all of your information, this is going to allow you to be elastic as it relates to your scale of your application and as your as and gives you the same elasticity for your your data as well. So at at the end of the day, it's really just focused on um, information and accessing that information and being able to scale either your, your OpenStack infrastructure and or the data that lives in these containerized platforms, if that makes sense. So, again, let's go back to a tangible story here. You, you are that entrepreneur. You have your business online. You're selling widgets. And you're seeing the volume grow from you know 10,000 users a day to a million users a day. What, what does that... Um, platform allow you to do to make things easier for you as you scale? 
grow. It allows me to uh, add additional compute and understand that if this customer's tenant has the velocity of scale that it needs, the, the containerized platforms, specifically in cloud, allow me to grow with that data. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things where it's really hard to kind of paint a picture of a, of a specific use case because data containerization can live in the financial space, for example, um, or it can live in the retail space. It's all based on how they're parking their data and their, their applications and how fast do they want to scale based off of the demand. And so the, the DevOps mentality is, uh, um, for those who understand um, agility or agile uh, methodology, it's, it's very agile, right? So you're able to have continuous development with information and pivot, pivot and turn on the fly so that way you can adjust to your application requirements. And I know that's probably a little too technical, but for, for those listening, I, I think the, the point is it's containerized and data lives in one single place where your organization has access to it. So let me give you, I guess, let me try a different scenario here. I'm a customer that has all on-prem infrastructure. Uh, let's say it's in a location facility or it's in my office. and much of this workload does not need to be in that environment. Um, my IT team has high turnover. Uh, it's hard for me to staff the people who can deal with the break fix of that infrastructure inside of, of that data center. And I'm strongly considering migrating my applications and my data into one of the public cloud environments to just take care of that piece of it. Um, how does containerization allow me, in a, and I have not been using a containerized strategy at all, how can containerization help me migrate from where I am to where I want to be? It helps you. It, effectively, it's going to help you create a streamlined method to consolidate that data center and move those applications over to specific containers. So as you re-architect your, your technology and as you re-architect your platform, um, it's no longer a traditional application footprint as if it was when you were on-premise. So that, that would be my answer to your question. And how, how is this any different than what may have existed 10 years ago, or even, I would say, five years ago in, in the market? It's, uh, it's an adjustment. I'm not sure it's necessarily... Excuse me. It's uh, not necessarily different, per se. It is a, a methodology. And so as you look at containerization, or we'll just classify it as DevOps, it, it's, it's a best practices approach on how to re-architect your infrastructure and your data loads and workloads at a much more um, effective uh, uh, um, speed so that way your, your go-to-market strategy around that platform is, uh, can scale with your business. So a lot of the, the hype that I hear around these products with Kubernetes and Docker is that um, you know, today it's, it's much, much easier for companies to migrate those on-prem workloads into the cloud due to those technologies. Is that, would you say that's a true statement? I would. I would absolutely say it's a true statement, but I also would say it's a true statement for those um, organizations and or um, customers who can adopt to the, uh, the DevOps mentality. And I, I think you kind of um, hit the nail on the head there. And it really comes down to, is 
the customer ready for this type of change? Is the are, are they able to um, appreciate the re-architecture capabilities of data and containerization? and shift away from the traditional approach of how they're restoring their applications or their their data on their infrastructure. And so if the organization can really um, take true to the, you know, to the oath of doing it better and be more agile and have more structured um, uh, approaches to containerizing their, their infrastructure, if you will, that, that would be um, a great example of a successful use case where customers will thrive in a DevOps environment. If there's resistance or not enough professional development and training of the internal staff being able to understand these concepts, that's where your point is uh, spot on. It will fail and it'll probably fail miserably. So let's get get into DevOps for a little bit um, because I think more and more people are starting to understand what the heck DevOps is. But what what is DevOps like? How would you define DevOps to you know an up up and coming CIS major at DePaul that you may run in on the street who who um, is looking to get into DevOps because they hear that they can make more money <laughs> if they have that expertise? Um, I would say from a technical standpoint, it's the you know the integration of development, testing, and basically creating a single single culture from a, from a platform perspective, right? So being able to provide like continuous delivery, continuous integration, um, stability in the management of that application or automation for that example. If you're a CIS major and you have a software development background and it's, that's where you want to kind of live in moving forward, um, DevOps is a great way to create software or service behind software and continue to evolve it without having to disrupt the existing workload. One of one of the key pieces too, just to add on, is the ops piece, right? So what what is the ops and the DevOps and how does that make it different for most just plain devs in the world? Like what, what are they missing um, that you get with that DevOps mindset? Well if you think about coding, right? If you think about coding and um, if a developer has to write code, for example, and the business has to do something with that code. They have to either package it or they have to um, continue to change it and reconfigure it so that way the end users are happy with that code. That's the operational piece um, of the DevOps, right? So as code's being developed, as the agility of that code is being built and tested, it's the packaging and the change management of on the operational side that allows them to be um, allows them to go to market faster while that developer or team of developers continue to produce a product and continue to code um, to hit their goals. And so, uh, I think continuous development and integration is really the key for DevOps. So, if you can imagine, uh, take it back to our our manufacturing use case. If you can imagine a an assembly line of software engineers and business operational people all lined up, whereas traditionally you couldn't do anything until the software guy was done and then the testing <laughs> testing people had to do their thing. And the operators came back and said, Hey guys, thanks for doing all your work. But you found, you know, five I found five different bugs and so we can't we can't publish this thing. 
let's start all over again. Well, that no longer exists anymore in the DevOps mentality. You can continue to develop, test, reverse back, and repeat that operation from a software perspective without impacting the business. And I think that's that's important for people to understand is it's you know almost like if you're building a building, you have uh, your crown molding guy who may be the, the most brilliant crown molding um, person on the planet who just does beautiful, great work. But if that person doesn't understand how what he's doing fits into the larger scope of the project um, and how you know how many rooms <laughs> they're going to be responsible for doing this for, uh, how many people they're going to need to hit certain dates, it's taking the kind of artistry of the, de- the development piece and mapping that to the the engineering discipline of, well, how do we make all of these disciplines work together and play together to achieve the final outcome? And to your point, one of the cool statistics that I saw um, in a book called The Phoenix Project, which you've probably heard of it, it's kind of the, the Bible in my office that I require all of our people to read, um, it speaks to how quickly organizations like Twitter and Facebook and Google and the hyperscalers have become and how adept they've, they've become at um, making changes to code. So whereas most companies may take you know months, if not years, before they can do a new release of a product, uh, these organizations are doing releases every day, if not multiple times a day. And it's because they have a very intimate relationship and understanding of DevOps, right? That's right. That's right. And, and as well, I, th- I think it's a good point to call out as well from, you know, we're, we're, all, we're talking a little bit about cloud and data center, right? And so it's not, it's, you know, it's a combination of software releases as well tied back to infrastructure. So for, um, you know, uh, monitoring or capacity planning or resilience in the infrastructure as well around the scale of that software package that's being coded out. That's where, you know, the the data center play really comes kind of the data center mentality uh, comes to play as well. So it is a combination of software and, you know, resource planning and operational delivery of which some of those are maybe technical resources, of which some of them may not be technical resources, and they're really focused on the operational piece. But it is a true, it is, it's a true integration, it's a true continuous integration of getting a product to continue to grow and scale. Beautiful. So one of the other conversations I want to have with you to get your, your input and your advice has to do with security, which has year over year been listed as one of the most the largest concern of CIOs and CTOs uh, who are thinking about migrating infrastructure data into one of the public cloud environments. How, how do you address that topic with, with customers who are concerned that, you know, by being in this IaaS environment that other people may have access to their data, uh, be able to, um, you know, do backdoors into their systems if it's all on shared infrastructure? Um, what, what is a, a way to think about security in the cloud that may help alleviate some of those concerns? Oh, boy, I could talk about this one for a long time. Um, such a great topic too, right? And security is obviously top of mind and it'll continue to be top of mind as you, you know, you see hacks like the Marriott platform and other scenarios like Equifax, et cetera, where there's been a lot of data exploits and bad stuff has happened, right? 
Um, and that's kind of put a dark cloud over some of the cloud platforms. But I, I want to say those are, you know, heavily fo- focused on that today. So we, we come up, we come across that challenge all the time. And I, I like to tell um, security officers and people who are focused in that space is I can spin up and activate security policies at a quarter of a time than any infrastructure would ever be able to do by racking and stacking infrastructure in an existing environment and going after the same alerts and monitoring. And so what does that mean? That means from a cloud standpoint, I can I can grow into the security policies that are required to secure a tenant at a much faster rate. So as you look at um, the security space today, where originally the cloud providers were trying to take on the security front-end experience by themselves, there's a huge trend that's happening right now. So if you look at the Cisco's and the Junipers of the world, they're creating these virtual appliances that once existed in a data rack as a firewall or as a, you know, a layer seven physical appliance. And now what they've done is they've converted that infrastructure into a virtual appliance that can sit at the head end of your data living on one of the cloud providers. So if you're an infrastructure that um, was Cisco, for example, or well, let's probably not even drop uh, vendor names, but you're 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 you know you're a you're an XYZ company that likes this particular product, and they're an enterprise level product. Um, you can now start to uh, deploy identical security policies into the cloud that you once did in your data center environment. And so as you think about wh- how we secure data we can still follow the same disciplines um, that we used to follow on the data center side. So how about addressing the concerns though, of having, you know, backdoor access between, um, you know, neighbors uh, who may be sharing infrastructure. Uh, So for example, you know, one of the concerns with Docker for a very long time was an exploit in the the back end of their their containerization um, and that would allow people to kind of gain visibility into data, uh, other environments that may be uh, within shared infrastructure. That my understanding is that it was recently uh, patched, but it was sitting out there for a very long time, preventing people from wanting to leverage Docker on an enterprise scale level. Um, you know, are those concerns valid? Is that actually a real, um, you know, a real concern for for customers? They're they're absolutely valid, but I think they're valid both on premise, right? And so the the point is is creating a platform and infrastructure that's monitored and managed and alerted correctly. And so if you follow best practices around um, all of your workloads, premise, on premise, or in cloud, as you look to architecture, and as we gave an example of your dream home. The foundation of your home is equally as important. Um, the thickness of the walls, for example, or the you know when you poured the cement, etc. As, as a perfect example, is how you prepared your cloud infrastructure to ensure that all of your workloads are secure, following every layered approach from the packet level, right, that ingress and egress of data coming in, all the way to the layer seven piece, which says, 
I'm looking for anomalies. I'm looking for one-offs. I want you to present anytime you see this type of scenario happening in my infrastructure, and I want to capture it all. And I want to make sure I've got more information than I ever had prior to my, you know, my data living on-premise. And I think that's the one great thing about cloud is we can spin up and access data logs in this particular case and pipe them into these, you know, single pane of glasses to create these alarming events to take action. And I, and I think it's a false statement when people say, um, you know, is data secure on-premise or in the cloud? I think data is secured when proper engineers take proper steps to design the infrastructure the right way. So there's still a dependency on the human factor. It's you have to be top at your game. You need to know what you're protecting and what you're presenting and making sure that it's just the right amount of information so that way you can, you know, capture all of these events going on. Yeah, and that um actually raises the next topic that I want to dive into because the reality is the vast majority of security breaches occur over the network. And it's it's people coming in over the the you know, breaking in through a website, um, just through any kind of exploits that they may be able to find over over the network settings or switch or router settings versus the systems level. Um, there's very few uh, developers and hackers who truly understand that the systems level of things. Um, but with the network being so important, uh, how have you seen software-defined networking and SDN, which is you know the new hotness in our space, uh, evolve and shift? Uh, you know, change the way companies are leveraging cloud services. I'm a big fan of SDN personally, um, for two reasons. One, it provides redundancy for customers at the local connection level, and two, it now provides the ability to define your 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 data packets number one and present situational awareness items that are happening real time without investing a lot of money. So um, the market, you know, if if you think about software-defined networking and routing in general, um, SD-WAN or, you know, software-defined infrastructure has been around for years, right? But it's never been really packaged, similar to DevOps, for example. It's never been consolidated into an appliance or into an engine. Um, because of all the segregation of information and tools that are out there. And so the industry is getting smart, and they're saying, listen, I need an appliance or I need software that can sit at the front end of my connection and capture as much information as possible and try to create these alarms and, and fix them before they create any damage or provide quality in my infrastructure and or be resilient and add redundant links that are real-time. So that way, my customers or my employees, if there's a failure or an outage, I can immediately switch them over to another link, carry that packet over to that secondary link, and fail back, and the customers or the experience would never know that they were actually in a scenario where a link broke. And so for that, I'm a, I'm a big fan because if you can integrate SD-WAN into your technology 
and now either have a data center approach or a cloud approach, the remote users won't know the difference in the event something ever happens. And at the same time, you're protecting the, per- the perimeter of that office, which is a fantastic uh, win-win in my opinion. Yeah, and the other, there's two, two other pieces. One, um, the ability to have prioritization of certain types of traffic is pretty kick-up kick ass. So if you have that switch uh, and all your customers are accessing the internet through the switch, you can basically say, look, my my Facebook traffic and my Netflix traffic and my YouTube traffic is going to go down, throttle down to a very, very minimum. Um, But my voice and my data uh, that are key to my business, you know, let's say Salesforce uh, traffic, that's going to take priority. Um, And you can throttle that up and you just have intimate visibility into what's going on in your network. So that component, I think, is really, really awesome. But as it relates to specifically the cloud piece, there's also a lot of interesting things going on in that world where, for example, um, prior scenarios, as I'm sure a lot of your customers have direct connects from their office or from their data center into Azure, Google, AWS, whatever it might be, um, you know, with the advent of, not the advent, but the the scale now of companies like Megaport and the Equinix Cloud Exchange and related um, uh, cloud internet exchange platforms that makes it a heck of a lot easier for people to both access these cloud environments and have multi, multi-cloud environments and hybrid environments. Are you, are you leveraging those tools? And if you are, how, how are you leveraging them today? We're, lever- we're leveraging those tools, but more so we're leveraging the, um, the the methodology of ensuring either if you are on direct connect or a low latency connection back to your data center via MPLS or or the cloud, and or if you have resiliency in your backup design, the SD-WAN component um, allows us to ensure that you can ride over either highway in this situation of an of a outage or an event. And so, um, you know, you, you talked about the, the Layer 7 security and QoS uh, components, which I think is a fantastic point to call out is because there's only, you know, pipes are fixed, right? At the end of the day, there's only so much bandwidth coming into a traditional business. And so being able to control the quality of that data is huge. But the it goes even beyond the... It goes into that and beyond. So in other words, if if you're in a failover state or you have to redirect traffic from an SD-WAN perspective, I think it's important for you to, you know, to realize that that can happen without impacting um, the end users. And so really, the software defined strategy is focused on quality right now, in my opinion. It's focused on taking multi-carriers, um, multi-homed approaches, hub and spoke, and saying, this is great. I need to get to my data or my application to be presented. Um, I don't care how I do it as long as it's secure and as long as I keep my CFO happy, which is bringing one or many circuits at a low price. If I can inject or put this box in the middle of all that and also create a secure environment, then I've achieved some pretty good SLAs um, around customer satisfaction, right? Um, And and resiliency for that matter. The, The network stays up. People are happy. They're able to get to their you know, to their email or to their, their software application or whatever the case may be. And um, uh, we get to, you know, continue to do our jobs the right way. Awesome. So the other the other topic that I think is apropos for, especially those who are listening, is starting the conversation with your customer. And I know in a lot of the cases, 
guys get a lot of referral business. So when you're talking to someone, there's already a need that's on the table. Um, but if you are a, you know, you're a sales rep or you're a, a consultant in the industry and you're talking to a CTO, CIO, like what are those first conversations that you want to have and questions that you might be asking to even test the waters and see if there is an opportunity for you to engage? Right. Well, I always like to keep it simple, right? What, what keeps you up at night is, uh, is a real question for me to ask a CIO or a CEO or a CFO who is really focused on data and operations at the end of the day. And so um, business continuity and data loss and security keeps people up at night. And so as you look to have a footprint into a customer, you really need to f- focus on um, first, whatever's keeping them up at night, you're from a technical perspective able to solve. So let's just assume the prerequisites are in place today. But if you can have that conversation around solving their problems from a business continuity standpoint, you've got their attention. And so the other thing, I I had the privilege of um, being a panel, uh, a part of a panel for a, a large main stage event that happened last year at a cloud event. And one of the things that we focused on was um, continuity and business, um, uh, uh, you know, failover strategies, if you will, or, or business continuity strategies. And so if you can be effective but not intrusive at the onset to any customer's environment and only add more value at that initial entry point, you've got a customer for life, in my opinion. And you can continue to grow and scale that customer based on best practices and what the industry is doing. And it's a simple question, you know, what keeps you up at night? Is your, is your data protected? If so, how? How long? Is there a compliance? Are there security aspects to your data that you're adhering to? If so, what's the policy behind it? And, the, you know, you can continue to scale and go down and down this this conversation to a point where once you've collected enough information, then you can now present a solution for them that makes sense. And that solution most likely is one that no one else has asked um, questions about because they're too busy focusing on keeping the lights on and not focusing on the business itself. And so when you're able to do that as a consultant or as a practice looking to grow their business, that's going to be the winner right there in my opinion. So the effective but non-intrusive uh, approach sounds amazing, and uh, you know I can totally jump behind that. But what what is a use case you know in your track record and your history where you were able to come in and be effective but non-intrusive right off the bat? A perfect example of a customer that has a data center on-premise DevOps environment where um, they've got a a series of hypervised servers that are running their their back-end office. And they don't have clustering in place. They don't have resiliency around data management. And me being able to come in and saying, great, you guys continue to do what you're doing. I don't want to disrupt your your day-to-day. Give me the opportunity to give you 
you know, what the, the industry calls low restore time and restore point objectives. And I'm going to do it in a way that's not going to impact your environment. I'm just going to add this application or tag this thing, and I'm going to replicate your data. I'm going to continue to do so. So in the event this rack ever fails, I'm just going to redirect all of that traffic that's super important to you over to this um, infrastructure that's running in the background, ready to be spun up whenever um, your primary fails. By the way, it's not intrusive. It won't bother your network. It won't bother your data or your Kubernetes containerized infrastructure. But I'm going to carbon copy it. Here's Here are the best practices that I'm going to follow. And this is what I'm going to do. And we, you know, we try to be nimble around the pricing point because that could be intrusive, right? So we want to focus on something that makes sense from a business perspective as well. But when we're able to successfully deploy that type of environment and demonstrate that it works extremely well, now we've got the customers here and they're saying, okay, that worked well. This is great. You understand clearly that from a technical perspective what we're trying to achieve. We like the way you're thinking. What else can you do to help us um, grow into either cloud or better business continuity strategies around it? And that's when you inject other things that you're able to do, right? So that, that's the entry point, I guess, to your question of providing value and just being that resource or that person that can bolt on to a, a platform that's already in continuous movement without them knowing you necessarily, you know, trying to take over someone's job, if, uh, if that makes sense. No, that makes a ton of sense. And that's a great example. I, uh, I love it. So tell, tell me more and tell our, our listeners more a little bit about uh, Ready Networks. And you also have another company that you work with as well. So let's, let's dive into your day-to-day and the organization that you have and how you're currently helping customers in the marketplace. Yeah, so, so Ready Networks and Power Up Cloud are two organizations um, that, uh, that I own with one other individual. Um, and uh, it's, uh, we joined forces, right? So as we looked to grow into the, into the cloud business and to determine successes, I also realized that sometimes you can't just do it by looking at all of the same chips on the table. Sometimes you have to add more chips or add more building blocks to get to where you need to go. And so um, in 2015, we bolted on through a joint venture um, at the time, which has now gone uh, much further since then, um, a company called Power Up Cloud Technologies. And Power Up Cloud Technologies was able to bolt on our cloud services engine and allow us to be successful in the conversation of cloud while Ready Networks continues to focus on infrastructure, data center, and security. And so as we look to walk into an organization and to solve problems, that gave us literally overnight the ability to help customers move from cloud, lift, shift, or refactor their infrastructure over to cloud, and continue to evolve into their cloud journey around data and DevOps and other more advanced areas like AI and ML, while Ready Networks continues to focus on the security enablement piece of it. So now we cover the entire gamut of both on-premise and cloud as well, focusing on being a one-shop stop for, for all, all clients that we've got. And how, how big are those organizations? 
Globally today, we're a little bit under 200 people. Pound your chest a little bit about where you sit in relation to the different cloud service providers, the certifications that you guys have, and uh, you know, awards that you guys have won. Sure. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, we're, we're very proud of our, uh, our status um, with several of the cloud platforms today. We'll start with Amazon. Um, on the Power Up Cloud side, we're a premier partner within the, the world of 40,000 plus partners today. There are less than um, 100 partners right now that have the premier badging. I believe as of 2019 and the Amazon reInvent, there may be about 82 with some new partners coming in. And 82 partners globally. And so we are a premier partner with five specialized competencies um, in addition to the, uh, the premier steps, which is um, we have our DevOps competency, we have our migration competency, and a series of other ones, which, you know, just kind of really puts us at top of our game. And so, you know, from that standpoint, um, we are focused on staying on value with Amazon with their key areas. And they've been a great partner to us. As well with Microsoft um, Azure, we're a gold partner and we're focused on gold cloud and data. We've won um, a lot of awards um, with Microsoft in the AI space. So we continue to do some great things in the, the AI and machine learning space. And then uh, with the GCP component, we're an advanced consulting partner there um, looking to continue to grow our um, accolades with them as well and to grow our overall strategic approach across all of the three cloud platforms. So today we are, and again, not to pound our, my chest per se, but... Pound, pound your chest. That's the whole point here. So we are at the top of our game as it relates to cloud today. As a matter of fact, we were one of the launch partners with Amazon for machine learning. Um, there were only, at the time, 17 or 18 launch partners globally with the machine learning competency. Um, and we were, we were fortunate enough to study hard and be part of those, that launch process. So we're super excited about that. And uh, we'll continue to grow um, in uh, our markets, both in uh, North America as well as overseas. We've got... Um, uh, a big office in the India region, as well as the um, Asia-Pac Singapore region. And between our three three pods of teams, we're able to work around the clock and service customers all day long. And if someone wanted to contact you to take this conversation or take a conversation to the next level about potentially working with you guys, how could they do that and what, what process should they follow? You know, I'm I'm a big fan of one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation, and always happy to put people in the right right place with the right person. So they're more than welcome to call and ask for me if uh, they want. They can reference that they heard me on your podcast today. Uh, great experience, by the way. So I appreciate the time, and happy to have a conversation with them and either help them guide them towards solving the problem the right way or putting them in touch with the right resources. I'll put that that info on the show notes. But what what is that number they should call? Um, area code 847-859-0500. Awesome. And the very last question I have for you, Sam, I'll let you go, is do you love data centers? I do love data centers. I, I think you heard it in my voice today. Um, I am, by heart, a data center infrastructure route switch guy 
who grew up in that space. And so um, I'll always have a passion for it. And I'll always recognize where a customer should live, either in a data center environment and or a cloud environment. But to your question, um, you know, we'll, we'll never look away from the data center space because we recognize it's, uh, it's going to be here for a while to come. Yeah, and the reality is the cloud lives in the data center, man. Every cloud lives in a data center. We're everywhere. The data centers are everywhere. All right, Sam. Thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com, where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and, and hopefully hear from you soon. I So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com, where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.